This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University. And with us now, Charles, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Nice to be on with you, Scott. You know, it's interesting, as I was saying, uh, you know, there always are lots of great storylines prior to the Olympics even starting. Most of the time they're centered around, will the venue be ready? Will this be done? Will that be ready? Will there be snow? Will be enough snow? That sort of thing. Uh, I can't remember one being as political as this, but I guess there's certainly, uh, it's nothing new here, especially uh, for this part of the world. But your thoughts on how this is all getting underway? Well, you know, the addition of the North Koreans at a late stage of the Olympics has, as uh, the report said, sort of hijacked these Olympics away from South Korea, who are paying for it, you know, which should be an opportunity for the world to see a very prosperous, they're the 11th highest income nation in the in the world, a prosperous democracy, a responsible um, stakeholder in the international community. And instead, what we're getting is uh, a kind of smile diplomacy on the part of the North Koreans, which uh, behind all the smiles is one of the most dangerous uh, and repressive um, and failed regimes in the world. A lot of their people are, just don't get enough to eat. Plus, of course, this uh, nuclear threat, which uh, could be finally that after the Second World War, we'll start to see the use of nuclear weapons uh, to devastating effect. So, you know, these Olympics have been dominated by the North Koreans, and the North Koreans certainly um, want the world to think that they are a, a friendly nation full of photogenic and congenial people, and uh, and that maybe we should negotiate with them on the on the nuclear uh, issue, and maybe we shouldn't be engaging in those uh, economic sanctions that Canada has been championing most recently at the meeting held in Vancouver last month. So. It has become highly politicized, um, and I think that uh, this is not actually going to lead to any positive benefits in terms of uh, improving the prospects of world peace, because uh, North Koreans are able to delay the time, continue to develop their nuclear weapons, raise doubt among our allies about the virtue of the economic sanctions, and according to the U.S., in a few months have the capability to explode a nuclear device over a city in the continental United States. What is in this for South Korea? I mean, do we invite them to the party, otherwise they'll crash it? What, what is South Korea getting out of this? When, and at what point did, did they lose control of this? At what point did the balance shift? Well, I think certainly in the past, when South Korea has had some focus of the world on it, the North tend to uh, engage in some awful uh, incident to, to distract the attention. So... I think there's some assurance that with the North sending nearly 500 people to the games, um, including you know their 230-member uh, cheerleading squad and officials and a few athletes and artists and so on, that North Korea will not blow up anything uh, while the games are ongoing. And so I think from that point of view, it gives the South Koreans an assurance that, that the games will re- remain safe and that there won't be some incident that will lead to loss of human life. So... And then there's also the idea that maybe if the North Koreans come down to South Korea, that they will have some proposal to try and resolve the ongoing crisis over their nuclear threat short of resumption of the Korean War. And indeed, the the sister, as as the report said, uh, Kim Yo-jong of the uh, North Korean dictator Kim Kim Jong-un, is in um, 
Pyeongchang now and will be meeting with the uh, South Korean leadership tomorrow. So maybe she'll have a letter, maybe she'll make a proposal. You know, we're sort of grasping at straws here, but it's probably better to communicate than not. Uh, Your thoughts about Kim Jong-un dropping his sister into this mix uh, and during the opening ceremonies, uh, and, and I guess just simply because of the novelty, because of, of they're there and the way that things have shaken down, this is, has drawn attention away from, uh, from the South. And, and as you mentioned, the North, you know, hijacking the games. Talk a little bit about the opening ceremonies and the politics there, the fact that uh, these people are there, who they're standing for, who they're not. It's, it's obvious uh, there was some tension as well as celebration. Well, certainly the Americans are very unhappy about this, and uh, Mr. Pence was seated relatively close to the uh, Korean leaders. The delegation from North Korea is headed by their head of state, Kim Jong-nam, a titular head of state, that would be, who's 90 years old. But the real star is the 30-year-old uh, sister of the of the dictator, who, you know, is seen as a sort of Ivanka Trump of Pyongyang in the sense that she's a, a younger woman who is perceived as offering a moderating influence over a potentially erratic um, leader of a state who has uh, uh, the finger on the nuclear button. So, you know, she there's a lot of fascination about her. She was, as her brother was, was educated in Switzerland at school, uh, subsequently went to university in Pyongyang, Kim Il-sung University, named after her grandfather. And then we believe that she um, attended uh, education in Europe at, uh, at university there. But like so much about the North Koreans and their leadership, we don't know. We don't even know, you know how old they are exactly, either she or her brother and they don't issue biographies, and you don't have a lot of evidence. Another interesting figure who's there, which was part of the advance team, is a famous North Korean singer, Hyung Song-wool, who is uh, alleged to have been the lover of the current leader uh, when he was younger, and his father, um, Kim Jong-il, told him to shut it off. This is all rumor, you know. And uh, and subsequently, in 2013, uh, there had been reports that she had been executed along with uh, her fellow performers in the uh, in the North Korean famous pop group, the Potomko, uh, uh for uh, making pornographic videos. So they said that she'd been shot, that she'd been killed by a firing squad. Uh, two years later, she reappeared. Um, evidently, those rumors were a bit exaggerated. Quite alive. But she's been a focus of big attention in South Korea because, surprisingly, this North Korean singer is a major um, star in South Korea, despite the fact that her songs have titles like I Love Pyongyang, She is a Discharged Soldier, and We Are Troops of the Party. So wow. you have these hmm. attractive young women who are sort of the, the, the attractive face of what really is quite a horrendous regime. So it's a very, uh, you know, sort of bizarre kind of situation it is it is very bizarre. Um, obviously, as well as athletic competition, there's a political display on here as well. Why would Kim Jong-un feel the need to time his parade or not delay it in and around the opening of uh, opening ceremonies of the Olympics? I mean, yeah, I mean that, that's... all the attention is clearly on the team and what's going on in South Korea. Why say, oh, yeah, we're doing this here back home? Yeah, it seems that he wants to send out a double signal. Um, sort of aggressive, passive kind of thing, isn't it? 
you know, and they had this massive. Or he's uh, mainly, or he's simply just looking for as much attention as he can possibly get. So he's unloading everything. Yeah, I mean, the 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 parade had you know their tanks, their planes, and thousands of goose stepping troops. Uh, uh, two major intercontinental ballistic missile systems, the Hwasong-14 and Hwasong-15, were on display, with both of which the North claims can reach U.S. soil. So, you know, you do get that two sides. I mean, this sister is a presumably a charming young person who may be able to speak English, but she's also on the U.S. Um, uh, sanctions blacklist because of her complicity and gross uh, human rights violations and crimes against humanity. So, you know, you, you really uh, you really got two sides to this coin. And one so is this, shine, is this shining a different light on North Korea, or is it just drawing attention to the atrocities that's there? Well, I I'm, think the images, uh, you know, seem to suggest that North Korea is not as bad as we think. All the yeah. people there are well-fed and friendly and well-clothed. Um, we'll see if some of the North Korean delegation might defect to South Korea, which would sour things a bit. But uh, as it looks, it's been brilliantly stage-managed, and uh, and people like those images, as you say, of attractive performers, you know, fantastic Taekwondo demonstrations, and all of these things that seem to put a shiny face on the regime quite different from the way it's depicted uh, by political scientists like me. Uh, this is, though, of course, a two-week-long celebration. Uh, as I mentioned, the preamble before the games was all about politics. Uh, certainly a phenomenal show for opening ceremonies and, and as much surprise and, and imagery as you can imagine. How do you see these games progressing? Will this all kind of die down and we're back to the games? Or will, they, will, they'll be, will, will there be these little spouts of politics coming in all the way through this? Well, I guess, you know, these um, the senior North Koreans won't be sticking around for that whole period. They'll have their talks, and then they'll go back. Will much um, be accomplished, do you think? Is, do you think there is goodwill here? Do you think this is a, a turning point? Will we look back at this, or is this just more of the same? I think it's basically the North Koreans do have a pattern of this, where they try and show a friendly face. They get concessions from the West, possibly promises of, of financial aid, which they've uh, they've asked for time and time again. You get the financial aid uh, or food aid or or oil or whatever, and the North Koreans promise that they will ease back on the nuclear program development. Uh, we give them the money in good faith, and then they consistently show bad faith in continuing to develop the weapons. So, you know, it's not like this is something completely new. This kind of hot and cold thing out of North Korea has been something that's been able to sustain their power. The, the South Koreans agreed as part of the conditions for the North Koreans to come down that they would delay their joint military exercises with the United States, which, you know, are the North Koreans believe is a dress rehearsal for invasion of their country. And so they've got, they've got that. But I think after, they, after the end of this, we go back to the same thing. Um, Mike Pence is not prepared to have any interaction with the North Korean delegation. He didn't even attend the official dinner uh, last night. He went out for a, I don't know, burger or something with the, with the athletes. So we're not seeing this as one might have hoped, leading to some direct contact between North Korea and the United States, as President Trump had suggested might be a possibility. So I don't think this will have any, uh, any sustained um, uh, impact, but I think it does serve North Korean interests in delaying 
um, you know, hostilities and also possibly getting some um, financial aid. And the further delay may occur because it's rumored that they will be inviting the South Korean president to visit Pyongyang on an official visit. And that would, you know, also mean that in that period, South Korea would not be cooperating with the United States in, in trying to um, uh, pressure North Korea to to have uh, to give up its nuclear threat, which mm. really amounts to you know, ending that regime. Two sets of games going on, political and athletic. Charles Burton has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University. Charles, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Very good to speak with you. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Naloxone kits, we've talked about this. Who should have them? Who should be prepared? Uh, whether it's uh, EMS workers, uh, police, uh, firefighters, what have you. Uh, what about schools? Shopping mall. Should this be any different than, uh, you know, a, a, a nappy pen? Should it be any different than, you know, having the defibrillator on the wall? There you got your naloxone kit next to the axe for the fire and the fire extinguisher. It's all in a row there at the mall and in your school. Uh, that's the way it seems we're heading. Ryan Bird is with us, manager, spokesperson for the Toronto District School Board, and is on the line with us now. Ryan, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this today. My pleasure, Scott. So how did this come about? How did we get here? Obviously, this is preventative action. Uh, t- tell us about the discussion. So as part of the larger conversation, especially last year, you know, I, I think many of your listeners will know, you turn on the radio, you turn on television, you open the paper, you're hearing more and more about opioids and how it is increasingly becoming even more deadly. Um, you're hearing it from cities right across the country, not just here in Ontario or in Toronto, but right across the country. So that's kind of the starting point. Toronto Public Health um, had was looking at their overall plan for the city of Toronto, and we are a part of that. So working with Toronto Public Health, we started talking about, well, what can we do? And one of those things was by introducing naloxone kits into our high schools. We have about 110 of them um, here in Toronto. So we'll be introducing those uh, in the upcoming months. Uh, do we just have to face fact that this is a sign of the times, this is a preventative measure, and we have to do this? Is there resistance to this? Not that I've heard. I, you know, I, I think it is, like you mentioned off the top, whether it's a defibrillator or uh, an EpiPen, in all of those cases, you never want to have to use them. Uh, you know, you hope that everyone stays healthy and, and everyone's fine, but they're there as a precaution. And uh, I think this is just another... Uh, you know, item in the arsenal that we can use just in case. Um, and quite frankly, you don't want to wait for something to happen to then put them in schools. The whole idea is we've been told by health officials repeatedly right across the country, especially over recent months and over the last year or so, that this is a growing epidemic. People are dying from it. It's not you don't just get sick. Your people are dying from it. Um, so that's why we wanted to make the, the this preventative step just to have it on hand. Again, we hope we don't have to use it, but they're there in the office if we need them. Yeah, and as you mentioned, I mean, why wait till after an incident happens to react to this? And then, of course, you know what the public would be saying. So who would be using this? Is Are there certain people that are trained to use it? Is it for anyone to use? What's the protocol or what will be the protocol? So we have had some TDSB staff already undergo training uh, through Toronto Public Health to learn how to use them. So for people that haven't seen them, they're essentially 
they're intranasal, so it's it's not unlike a uh, like a sinus spray. Right. Um, you just literally stick it up a nostril. You depress the plunger, um, and I believe there's obviously other portions to it. There's there you can begin chest compressions at one point and then reapply if needed. Because um, what really if what if they're is, not, what if they're not breathing or their breathing is very slow, Ryan? Exactly. So that's why uh, the people that will be trained on this at the TDSB are typically going to be the people that already know. CPR, first aid, that kind of stuff. It'll likely be that person. We're going to be training two to three people within the school um, to use these uh, the naloxone kits, uh, and typically it's going to be the people that already have those skills uh, already. Who else is doing this? What other boards are looking into this or have done it? My understanding is the Ottawa Carlton District School Board has something similar. Uh, I, I know I've heard of other boards, I believe, across the country that have started to do this, but I think we're among the first... Uh, kind of grouping that are looking at this. Um, so again, I, I think, look, we've heard the evidence. We've we've talked to the health professionals, so we thought it was the right step. No, it makes perfect sense. Uh, any reaction from kids or parents? Not that I've heard yet. Uh, you know, I think this is this is still fairly fresh. I think uh, what what our hope is is that they'll understand that it's a growing issue and it's just to have it on standby it you know it's not encouraging anyone to do anything it is simply just uh you know uh, important potentially life-saving medication that's sitting in the uh in the school not unlike an epipen uh which again can literally save a life as naloxone can too and obviously the costs are quite minimal compared to the outcome of not having it absolutely so uh, the estimate that I've been given is about 150 to 200 dollars per kit. Uh, so once we fan those out to all of our high schools, we don't have a final number yet, um, but we're looking anywhere from maybe 16,000 to just over 20,000 dollars to provide these naloxone kits to all of our 110 or so high schools. So it's not uh, obviously it's money, but it's not an enormous amount of money, especially given the fact that it is literally potentially life-saving. When will this be in all schools, do you think? Training is going to begin uh, beginning of March, so we'll be starting that before March break. Uh, and then we figure training should be finished by the end of April. Once the training's finished, uh, we'll start rolling out these naloxone kits. So I would assume uh, that all of the kits will be out to our schools by the end of the school year, um, but most likely they'll be starting to roll out uh, in the next month or two. Should this be mandatory? Should this be something the province is doing to make sure it's in all schools? I mean, very you know, similar I, I, to a, a defibrillator or uh, an EpiPen, as you're suggesting? You know, I think it can't hurt to have that conversation. I think really it comes down to a conversation, and this really is an important partnership, between school boards and your local health authority. You know, if you're talking to the public health officials in the area, it may not be an issue in, in, in certain regions. I, I just don't know. But it really comes down to that conversation because it's not just – we're not just making a decision because it sounds good. Like it, it really is based on that conversation and the data that we've been provided by Toronto Public Health and other public health officials that we're doing it. So it, it's hard to say whether it should be mandated across the province. I think it really is part of a larger conversation that school boards are, are likely, and I know having them right now with their local public health officials. Times certainly have changed, haven't they, Ryan? They have indeed. They have indeed. Uh, I can't let you go, and, and I don't mean to T-bone you on this one, but anything more on police in schools in Toronto? Where are we with that discussion? Trustees, so the first thing is the, the stu- a school resource officer program has now ended at the TDSB. That saw 
a police officer um, tasked to certain high schools. Sometimes they'd be there, you know, all through the week. Sometimes they might be there a couple of hours during the week. So it did vary. That program was ended uh, as per a decision by our trustees uh, earlier this school year. But the fact is, we still have important relationships with Toronto police officers. So, you know, I was just looking online a couple of days ago. We, we have officers in our schools talking about traffic safety, online safety. So the relationship is still there. It's just that specific program that has since ended. Uh, is this discussion ongoing then? As far as SROs, no, they, that program is now over and it is formally ended at the TDSB. But again, the, the, the relationships with Toronto police officers still continue. They're still in our schools, just not as part of this specific program. Uh, one more question on the Lock yeah. Zone kids. A listener uh, asking, um, how come the, the public gets them for free? The school boards have to pay for them. Do they have an expiry date? My understanding is that the reason why the public gets them for free is that they are funded by either the province or public health authorities. So someone still has to buy them. In our case, we do have to buy them through the supplier. That's my understanding uh, on that one. As for expiry dates, yes, uh, like any medication, there is going to be an expiry date on some of these. I'm not sure exactly how long they last, but that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on and make sure that you know, as they do expire, that they will be replaced. Yeah, and again, I guess no different than an EpiPen there. Yeah, exactly. Ryan, uh, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem at all. Thank you. Ryan Bird has been with us, manager, spokesperson for the Toronto District School Board, uh, now looking into carrying uh, naloxone kits uh, in order to uh, stop something. Uh, it's just simply preventative medicine. I, considering what has been going on in the world, uh, this is, I think, just a, another proactive, uh, a great idea. Let's bring in Sean McKeegan, Director of Men's Services, Mission Services. Uh, he is with us now. Sean, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thank you, Scott. Uh, your thoughts. Uh, obviously, you see uh, what this does at a street level. Your thoughts of the possibility of them coming into schools? Well, uh, like, I, like I think you were just discussing with your last, uh, with your last guest, it's, it very much is preventative. We've been using uh, naloxone kits. Our staff have been trained and have been using naloxone kits uh, with individuals who have needed them since November 2016. Uh, we don't use them with the frequency that, that uh, the media you, you might think, uh, because people uh, are becoming more aware. Uh, they're recognizing that there are resources available, and you know there's a level of preparedness that comes with having a lot of some kids where you know people understand that uh, you know they they want to be in safe spaces, they want to be in safe places, but but should they should they be required, uh, they're available, and and people are, are trained to use them. I would compare it to uh, you know, seeing defibrillators in public spaces. You don't know when there will be a medical emergency. You don't know when somebody will experience a, experience a crisis. So uh, that they're available and accessible uh, is a positive step. Uh, are, what is the frequency? Uh, can you give us an idea of, of how much they would be used at a place like Mission Services? Sure. Uh, you know, off the top of my head, uh, I would say, because we had this conversation uh, maybe a week ago, uh, we've seen them used about a half a dozen times in the last uh, last six or eight months. Uh, so it's not with with great frequency, um, but periodically we do. And each of those times, we always involve uh, EMS or or HPS, um, or sorry, our, your emergency medical services or or your your police service. Um, 
in the event that there is an emergency. So these aren't these aren't ever instances where if we do need to use something like that, that that we see ourselves as the sort of last stop. There's always other professionals that would be involved in someone who experiences an event like that. Uh, but they do not have they're not they're not daily occurrences, at least not for us. Uh, we we have addiction support on sites. We want uh, individuals who are or or living with those addictions issues to to have people that they can talk to. We don't uh, we don't try and operate in a purely reactive way. We we want to be engaged with the individuals that we serve uh, at every step of their process. Obviously, as with anything like this, there is a stigma attached to it. Uh, obviously, Sean, you see it on, on the street level as director of men's services through mission services. Um, are you surprised? And, and, you know, if people were to say mission services have, have these, no one, I think, would be surprised and, and would be happy that you you have them for this reason. Um, but now from something like mission services or EMS workers into uh, high schools, are you surprised at that at all? I'm not surprised uh, because I I'm, and we've had this conversation before, certainly in the work we do, uh, some of the individuals we serve there. That, that stigma you talk about uh, or how people would associate with, with individuals who are experiencing homelessness or, or living in poverty. But opioids and the opioid crisis is one that, that certainly doesn't have any socioeconomic boundaries. So, you know, these aren't, uh, these, it's not something that affects, uh, that affects one particular group. It, it affects people from all classes and from all walks of life, these are still medications that you could find in your parents' medicine cabinet. They, you know, they're they're prescribed medications. They are, so it doesn't surprise me that that uh, that that it would exist in the high schools. It's a positive step that that schools are working to be prepared in the event that somebody has an experience like that that that, that requires an intervention. That is, it is a positive step. Are you surprised how quickly this has become an epidemic? I think uh, I'm surprised at how how much traction it gets. These, I think we've seen uh, various uh, drug epidemics before, different types of medications that have become uh, that have looked like epidemics. But but the way information is shared now, and and the way we're able to communicate and connect with one another, information spreads so rapidly that I think we all uh, we have an ability to be almost hyper aware of what's happening as it happens. So every time there is an incident or every time there is an event, um, people know about it and a great number of people know about it very, very quickly. So we all have an opportunity to, you know, identify with it and connect with it and respond to it. We can work to, if we're uh, at an organizational level, we can work to develop responses to that, how we want to engage individuals uh, that way. Before where information was sort of slower to travel, if we went back 10 years or 15 years, there were certainly uh, different challenges, but but the speed with which the information travels now, I think, uh, has has brought a, an entirely new level of awareness to to the, to the issue. What's it like? And and let's use this to help people and give them some tips, especially for parents who may not know what the heck is going on. I mean, it's much like the first time your kid has an allergic reaction. Uh, once you get the advice in the EpiPen, you know what to do, you know what to look for. Uh, but with something like fentanyl or an opioid overdose, uh, obviously uh, time is precious here. What does a parent or anyone for that matter look for? What does it look like when someone's going over the edge and and you have to administer and you know it's time to administer this drug what are the signs what do you see what's it like 
Well, I, I think uh, one of the one of the things, the point you make there is that you're talking about someone who's dealing with a loved one. So I think you recognize if you're dealing with a loved one, especially a child or a parent or a family member, you recognize where they sort of uh, are as a baseline. So when you see somebody who isn't themselves and uh, they begin to sort of recede into themselves, uh, you identify things like uh, depressed breathing or uh, absence of uh, shallow breath, people that are unresponsive or they're not responding to cues, they're not responding to touch. You you may be in that situation. You always, uh, like any other uh, medical emergency, what you believe to be a medical emergency, you always call 911. Uh, and, and you can let them know uh, what steps you're taking. If you have naloxone and you're prepared to administer that, oftentimes you'll see that work very, very quickly. Um, but it, but it, it can be a little bit different for for each person. But you do uh, you do you are at some advantage when you're dealing with someone that you know, and it, it is because you know them, you're you're familiar with them. But uh, I would say even before that, you want to ask the questions, you want to have the conversations with people. It seems difficult at first, but you do want to have a conversation about uh, about drugs. Uh, you want to have a conversation and, and ask if you've got children that you're concerned about or if you've got children that you're worried about uh, experimenting. Uh, ask those questions. Ask those questions of them. Ask them if they understand you know, the dangers. Ask them if they understand the impact. Ask them if they've been affected by that or if they've seen someone who's been affected by that. You know, as long as you, you, you work to normalize the conversation, they'll get easier. They, it'll get easier to ask those questions and you'll find it easier to respond. Communication is the key, isn't it? You just And it's not a case of having a talk, it's an ongoing thing. It is an ongoing thing, absolutely, yeah. And this reacts, this would be very similar to seeing someone have an allergic reaction where you may use an EpiPen. And so the, the first couple of minutes are vital here, are they not, if you have that long? They are. Um, and again, it's, you want to be aware that the first couple of minutes can be vital, and that's why you know you you never uh, you never exclude you know emergency services. So if you're looking, if you're in a position where you where you need to use uh, a naloxone kit, and you believe you're in a in a position to uh, to have to reverse the effects of an opiate overdose, you want to make sure that medical personnel are involved and 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 en route. Uh, whether you administer that before you call EMS, uh, again that. It's possible that you do, but seconds matter, and certainly minutes matter, but you want to be paying attention. You want to make sure that emergency services are involved. And, and again, you want to stay with that person and make sure that, well, you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it's enough, but it becomes it becomes an exercise in patience as much as anything else. Hmm. It sounds odd to say that, but you've got to be present. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We, we've uh, played and, and of course, uh, told you about many scams here over the course of The Scott Thompson Show. Uh, I think it started way back when, when uh, I actually received on my answering uh, service at home where this person just demanded money from me. And it was odd that, I, I thought it was odd, that they would leave all of this information, some of it just absolutely bogus, on a recorded, um, you know, phone call. I, I just thought it was bizarre. So I, I, of course, made a copy of it and played it on the air and actually called the numbers that the person had given us. And, you know, over a course of a couple of days, ended up getting in and talking to these people for like 20 minutes 
them not realizing, of course, they were on the radio for the whole thing. And this just continues to happen. There was, you know, you owe us this money, pay us in phone or pay us in uh, uh, gift cards, you know, and it got so bad to the point that places that sold gift cards would actually put notices up saying, I hope you're not, you know, buying these so you can pay off things through a, you know, a phone scam. You should be aware of this. So it seems that obviously these people are one step ahead. Uh, We've talked about these situations many times over the years, and and a lot of it's pretty repetitive. This one seems to be new. Uh, I have noticed that I've started to getting more of these on my cell phone as well as, you know, obviously a landline. Uh, But cell phones, you know, obviously just as susceptible as anything else. Uh, This new one is a, and I don't know how new it is, but it certainly seems to be getting more traction. A one-ring scam is back and now catching newer unsuspected cell phone owners. It shows up on your phone as if someone from overseas has called you. And if you call back, you'll hear an automated message or music. And I guess the idea here is just to keep you on the line as long as possible. And as Theo Sellis was saying er earlier, you know, we're so addicted to these dang things. And I've got these before. You look up on your recents and you think, well, who's that? Who's that calling me from Bogota? Yeah, what's that all about? Or who's this person calling me even from Ohio? I got to call him back because I just, I can't go to sleep without knowing who's trying to reach me. Perhaps there's something that somebody that wants to talk to me and has something to say and I'm not reaching back. How can I possibly lie my head down and sleep? Easy. But some people just feel, I got, and you know, I've misdialed or you pocket dialed someone and all of a sudden, you know, uh, Anthony calls. Yeah, what do you want? Who are you? Well, you called me. Well, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. You called me. I'm sorry. I I misdialed. I, you know. Whatever happened to the uh, answering thing? Like, if, if, if I want you to call you back, if I want you to call me back, I'll, I'll just say, hey, you know, it's, it's Bob. Call me back. Chances are people don't leave a message. I know this is really hard to accept, but they probably don't want to talk to you. Otherwise, they would have left a message or not hung up. But maybe they had something to say. No, they don't want to talk to you. Can't you accept that? They don't want to be your friend. But because the draw of this is so great, the draw of the device, it's like heroin. I got to find out who this is. I don't know that number. It's not in my contacts. What do I do? Someone at the other end, smart. Look at all these suckers out there. I'm going to tap into this. Let's bring in Je- uh, Jessica Gunson, Acting Call Center and Intake Unit Manager, Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, and is with us now. Jessica, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So is this a new one, or has this been around for a while? Um, this one's been around for a little while, to say exactly when. Um, I don't have that figure for you, but this is one that we have heard of, and it's something that our call center has been receiving reports on from consumers. And it pretty much works exactly how you say. Uh, they receive a call. Sometimes it rings once. Sometimes it hangs up. Or it's a missed call. The consumer calls the number back, and they're charged a long-distance call. Now, we do know some of the messages that consumers have reported to us here uh, include that they're being told that they're being transferred to a financial advisor. They're asked to hold for a director, and they hear a recorded message simply asking them to hold. Little do they know they're being charged 
uh, an international premium rate while they're sitting there on the phone. So it's it's something that I think do they ever come back or do they just keep you on hold as long as you want? Or I guess maybe they'd come back and say, "Hang on, we'll be with you in a few minutes." Uh, it could be. Um, I think most consumers eventually just hang up, and then they they look at their phone bill and realize that they've been been charged these international rates at a, at a premium price. Any recourse? Can you go back to your phone company and say, "Hey, this was a scam," or is it no? You charge the bill. You got to pay it. Well, we advise consumers to have that direct contact with their phone provider if they do see a, a charge on there. And, and in some cases, consumers are telling us that they didn't even answer the call, that it was simply just a, a missed call, but there's a charge on their on their bill. So, what if it, it, it flicks on and goes to your and goes to your answering machine? I mean, is that um, could you still be charged there? I guess if it actually makes a connection. Uh, I suppose I, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, that'd probably be a better question for for the phone company. But I think the key here is that it doesn't matter what number showing up on your phone. And I think like what you were saying before, we we eat, live, and breathe with our phones beside us now. And there's this sense that if we've missed a call, that we need to call it back, even if we don't recognize the number. So the message that we're really trying to to hone out to consumers is, if you don't recognize the number, don't pick it up. Does it amaze you? And I mean, you see these scams all the the time, different types. And so really, I guess you can't be amazed. Um, You know, I was amazed at the... the, at the gift card scam that mm. people would actually think you could pay a bill with gift cards. Um, and, and but let me it, tell you, that's one that we're receiving day in and day out here. Um, it's, it's amazing how sophisticated that the bad guys have picked, you know, have, have realized people are so addicted to these things. They can't put them down. And all we have to do is call them back and hang up and they, they, they will pick up their phone and it's money in the bank. It, it's amazing. It's got to that point. Don't you find Absolutely. And what we need to realize is that, and, and even covering like the, the CRA scam, like what you've you know, talked about, is that the phone nowadays, you, you can't trust what, what the number says, what the person at the other end is telling you. And, um, you know, they, they may have a list as long as your arm of, of who they are, their credentials, um, what organization they work for. But at the end of the day, you have no way to prove that the person at the other end of the line is who they say they are, works for who they say they do. Um, and if it's this international number, if you don't know someone in that country, there really should not be a reason for you to pick up that, that phone call. And we need to learn to, to hit the decline, to hang up. And especially when in, you know covering the CRA, if they're calling and claiming to be a government agency and they're threatening you, it, it's to stop and, and listen to your gut. Because most consumers, in you know, hindsight, 2020, it's they realize in the moment that they it's a reaction, and the scammers want you to react in in that sense. They want you to go out, get those gift cards. It's great that the the pharmacies and the gift card racks have these notices now. Um, they're going to continue to try and get consumers to pay that money. It's interesting, though. I find Jessica that you know even with the phone card scam thing, you had to hang up the phone, think about it, go to the store buy the cards, and then do whatever it is they told you to do with them. There's quite a few steps there. This, it's brilliant in the sense that, oh, my goodness, who called me? I just have, all you have to do is touch a finger. All you have to tap your finger, and bingo, there's the scam complete. You don't even have to walk. You don't have to do anything. No, and, and that's, it's just not answering those calls. Yeah. And, and really, if, if everybody goes, and that goes for phone calls, that goes for emails, that goes for text messages, 
if we all just deleted, didn't answer, um, didn't respond to these types of solicitations, then no one would fall victim. But we continue to answer emails that claim to be from our financial institution. We continue to answer texts claiming that we have a refund coming from the CRA. And we continue to answer calls from a number we don't recognize. And so I think it's great that, that shows like yours really get the message out because our slogan is, you know, recognize, report, and reject. We need consumers to recognize these scams before they happen. They need to be able to report it. That's why we're here. And then reject these so that you, we put the scammers out of business. Uh, because of the, the the way this one works in the sense that somebody calls you and then you, you know, you see it on your recent list and, and you hit it and call back. So there's obviously a number there. There's a connection. Are these any ease, more easily traced? Is this scam any more easily traced because of this, this path that they're leaving? Well, we try to capture anytime there's a phone number listed or if consumers have a call display, now with the technology out there, like the voice over IP and, and, and what the, the scammers have at their fingertips now, I think it, it does provide layers um, of isolation that they kind of are protected. A phone number nowadays, is it can just be a series of numbers or letters. So it's not a lot to go on, but it lets us know uh, when consumers do report these numbers. Um, if we get calls from consumers in B.C., um, you know, Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec, and, and those numbers all match, that gives us something then to go on or to help. Of course, we don't investigate here. But what we do is collect that information. So when investigators are sitting down and looking at where are the calls coming into, what numbers are being used, we'll look at the same numbers been used in these four provinces. Um, it, it helps them to see and, and establish those patterns on, on who could be targeted next, or it gives them a baseline of where to start. What do we know about the uh, cell phone scam where they're obviously asking you to call back? Do you know where this is originating from? We heard rumors of Japan. Um, What do you know about it? Um, Myself, personally, because we're we're simply the intake unit here, so we take the calls from consumers. We we do share our our data, so the phone numbers and information, with our partners in law enforcement. Um, I, you know, I think, yeah, it's been referred to as the Wangiri scam yeah. and the, the origins there. Um, you know, your guess is as good as mine. We're kind of here in the present just taking those calls, collecting the information for investigators. What is the biggest, this one is newish, I shouldn't say new, but certainly newer than perhaps the other ones in the sense that the the public awareness isn't out there as much yet on this one as there is on, say, the CRA scam. What is the biggest one that you are getting the most volume of calls for right now? Uh, Well, the CRA, for sure. Um, And obviously, as we're entering tax time, do you see those heighten this time of year? Yes. And we'll often see, so not only the calls coming in, So, and, and for those that may not be aware of how that scam works, generally it's a message, and, and they're calling anybody and anybody, so there's a message left. It's um, from an, an officer, quote-unquote, claiming to work for the CRA, so Canada Revenue Agency. And it's very, like, it's very uh, dominant. It's, yes. it's, it's a very authoritative call. Yes, there's a, you know, a, a sense of urgency. There's a threatening tone there that you need yeah. to call back right now there's an issue with back taxes or with previous um or your current i think we've even had calls on your current tax return which hasn't even happened yet um there needs to be you know you need to call this number and speak with someone right away they do that they're told then that that a fee or these back taxes need to be paid 
If not, they could be uh, charged, arrested. If they are new to Canada, they could be deported, and that can be very scary for new Canadians, especially if they've just um, fled a war-torn country and may not be aware that this is not how the CRA works. Yeah. So, and, and, they, and the scammers will, will tell them, this is urgent, do not talk to anybody, you need to go, you need to go and get iTunes cards. Some will even say, like the one I got said, you or you have to get your attorney to call, like they'll even say, oh my goodness, they want my attorney to call, they want my, get your lawyer yeah. to call. I mean, it's my goodness, it's, it's amazing how, how convincing it is. And that's to provide that sense of urgency. Yeah. This must be a real, this is a very serious that's right. matter. I don't, and yeah. most don't have a lawyer. I don't have a no. lawyer, so I'll just call myself. Right. Yeah, it plays right into it. Yeah, and, and now they're asking for, for payment via Bitcoin, so we're seeing that as well because, um, you know, like we've seen, there's notices now up in the stores advising consumers that the CRA is not going to ask you for a gift card. They're not going to ask you for an iTunes card or a Steam card. Uh, and so, and we've seen... Pay your taxes with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Again, and I know it. it you have, you, know, to, but you have to wonder if people who understand or even have access to Bitcoin would fall for this. Well, our, our data shows that they do. We have some very large dollar loss victims. Really? That, that have sent, there's one victim that has lost $200,000. Oh, my goodness. And, and paying through Bitcoin. There's no shortage of stories like that. Are you surprised, even after all the work that you do or we do to try to publicize all of this? It's amazing. It is. And all we can do is, and again, prevention and awareness is getting the word out there. We encourage anyone that is, that has heard about these scams, anything that we've discussed today, tell your, fam- tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. If you belong to a club or a group, go to our website. Type in CRA scam in Google. Uh, you know, our American friends to the south, they see the exact same thing, but it's the IRS scam. We're not the only ones being hit with this. So if we can tell one person, they tell 10 people, they tell 10 people, very quickly the word gets spread that these scams are out there. And it could prevent someone from losing their life savings because we've seen that happen here. We've had that reported to us. So if someone does receive one of these calls, what would you uh, advise them to do, and or emails for that matter? And and, uh, if they want to report it, what do they do? So if they want to report it, regardless of if money has been sent or not, it's just always good to report. If you have lost money, number one, you want to report to your local police because they do need to be aware of what's going on within their jurisdiction. Our center is available. Our lines are inundated. We ask consumers to please be patient. We are inundated with calls, but we have a toll-free number that is 1-888-495-8501. And we also have the ability, or consumers have the ability, to file a complaint online through our website. And our website is www.antifraudcenter.ca, or simply do a search for Canadian Anti-Fraud Center. It's a government site, so you you either need to use your your bank account credentials to sign in, or you need to obtain a GC key, which is standard for a government website. It does take a little bit of time, but it's worthwhile to report these incidents. So there you are at the Anti-Fraud Center, and you're answering calls. Do all of a sudden you pick up a call, and it's a guy shaking you down for tax money? I mean, have you guys ever been called? Um, <laughs> I think someone here, one of, one of the staff, did get the call uh, at home. Um, we've seen other, uh, like, robocalls come through our office where one line rings, and it's like, you know, you've won a cruise and, and things like that, the automated message. Um, you know, we're not immune to it. We certainly try to recognize these, but, you know, I've received phishing emails just like everyone else. And, um, you know, I'm very proactive 
uh, I have I have a, an elderly grandmother that you know uh, when there's a new scam out there, she has a you know her own phone line. She no longer has her computer, but I let her know that that these scams are there, especially you know when there's the, the grandparent or the emergency scam. I said, you know, listen, Graham, if you get a call and someone says that someone's hurt, you call me first. So we had one. We got one listener that says that they tried to look up the place where they said it was and they couldn't find it. Like it says the city or the, or the place or the, or the country, they couldn't find it. Ah. They're using fictitious places. Uh, and that does happen. We've seen phone numbers called display numbers come in with a series of numbers and letters. And, uh, wow. and we, we report, we, you know, we mark those down as, as they're reported to us so that um, if we do see some patterns, we can share that. All right, be aware, and of course, uh, anything uh, that makes you suspicious, uh, make sure you get in touch with the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre to at least report it. And as Jessica said, if it seems odd, chances are it is. Jessica Gunson has been with us, Acting Call Centre and Intake Unit Manager, Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. Jessica, thanks for the time and insight. As always, we appreciate this. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.